From years of anxiety to warrior and mentor, Bradley Robinson created the Anxiety Project to help you end your anxiety naturally. Let's mold the new you and let's end anxiety together. Hello and welcome to episode 170 of the Anxiety Project podcast. I am Brad Robinson. Today is part three of the great knowledge I learned from books series where I take powerful books that resonated with me, that provided a lot of meaning in my recovery and in my life, and I want to read over some passages that you guys will find useful, that you can use for your tool belt in this self-development journey you are on. Before we dive into these great books, I want to go over what you guys have to say about previous episodes, starting with Neri. Neri says, This podcast has been my driving partner for weeks. Having been a sufferer of anxiety for over 20 years, I now feel more in control and determined than ever before. Well, I'm so grateful, Neri, that my podcast can be that tool for you in this new journey you're on, you know, you being in that loop for 20 years of severe anxiety, I feel grateful and I'm very humble that you are using this as a guide and you're expanding your knowledge of what is anxiety in yourself. And thanks for leaving your comment and sharing your story. I really appreciate it. Dawn says, your video saved me from a bad panic attack this morning. I lost my son last year and have been really struggling with anxiety. Thank you so much. Dawn, to have the rug pulled out from under you like that, there's no words to describe the chaos you might be in. I just want you to know that I have coaching and I'm always here if you want to talk more and keep following along, keep following the podcast. It takes courage and it takes bravery to heal from something like that. Just remember. Thank you for sharing your story and let's dive into the first book today which is Man's Search for Meaning by psychiatrist Viktor Frankl. Now, when I first bought this book, I had no idea the significance of this piece of work. I just saw the title, Man's Search for Meaning, and it resonated with me. Because I was looking for meaning. I was lost. I was in a cycle of anxiety for a long time. I was feeling stuck. And so this title popped out and I bought the book. And the book documents Victor's experience in Auschwitz. And the suffering, not only in himself, but the prisoners around him. The question he tackles 
and grapples with in this book is how can we accept suffering, find meaning in it, and continue forward? Now, I want to read you a passage from Victor's book. He says, As we said before, any attempt to restore man's inner strength in the camp had first to succeed in showing him some future goal. Nietzsche's words, He who has a why to live for can bear with almost any how, could be the guiding motto for all psychotherapeutic and psychohygienic efforts regarding prisoners. Whenever there was an opportunity for it, one had to give them a why, an aim for their lives, in order to strengthen them to bear the terrible how of their existence. Woe to him who saw no more sense in his life, no aim, no purpose, and therefore no point in carrying on. He was soon lost. The typical reply with which such a man rejected all encouraging arguments was, I have nothing to expect from life anymore. What sort of answer can one give to that? What was really needed was a fundamental change in our attitude towards life. We had to learn ourselves, and furthermore, we had to teach the despairing men that it did not really matter what we expected from life, but rather what life expected from us. We needed to stop asking about the meaning of life, and instead to think of ourselves as those who were being questioned by life, daily and hourly. Our answer must coincide not in talk and meditation, but in right action and in right conduct. Life ultimately means taking the responsibility to find the right answer to its problems and to fulfill the tasks which it constantly sets for each individual. These tasks, and therefore the meaning of life, differ from man to man and from moment to moment. Thus, it is impossible to define the meaning of life in a general way. Questions about the meaning of life can never be answered by sweeping statements. Life does not mean something vague, but something very real and concrete just as life's tasks are also very real and concrete. They form man's destiny, which is different and unique for each individual. No man and no destiny can be compared with any other man or any other destiny. No situation repeats itself, and each situation calls for a different response. Sometimes the situation in which a man finds himself may require him to shape his own fate by action. At, at other times, it is more advantageous for him to make use of an opportunity for contemplation and to realize assets in this way. Sometimes man may be required simply to accept fate, to bear his cross. Every situation is distinguished by its uniqueness, and there is always only 
one right answer to the problem posed by the situation at hand. When a man finds that it is his destiny to suffer, he will have to accept his suffering as his task. His single and unique task. He will have to acknowledge the fact that even in suffering, he is unique and alone in the universe. No one can relieve him of of his suffering or suffer in his place. His unique opportunity lies in the way in which he bears his burden. Now, that's the end of the passage. I want to touch on my recovery when I was suffering from severe health anxiety. It was when I took on the responsibility of getting better myself, right? I had to take on the cross. I had to bear the cross because my family, they couldn't help me. My relationships, they couldn't help me. I had to take on the cross that was my suffering and bear it and to accept that, hey, I have a lot to work on. I have a lot of things to heal from. This is going to be an uphill battle from now on, but this is what's necessary for me to get better. And then I started to think, well, if I could just work on myself and get better 1% every day, in a year from now, I'll be a totally different person in a totally different place from where I'm at now. So that's Man's Search for Meaning. Very powerful book. The second book I want to dive into today is Mindset by Carol Dweck. Now, there are two mindsets, and if you've been following along with my YouTube channel and my podcast, you already know that I talk about this a lot, but there's the set mindset and the developing mindset. The set mindset is when you are confined to your bubble and you are not willing to step outside of your comfort zone. And what's outside of your comfort zone is the knowledge necessary to grow. My old self, I didn't want to hear about my flaws. If you had something to criticize, I would snap back at you with anger. I didn't want to hear it because, hey, I'm me and this is me and just that's the way it is. That's someone with a set mindset. I was in my safe bubble. I was in my order, my known territory. And what was outside of my known territory was just too much to bear. My glass was overflowing with emotions, emotional distress, baggage, and any new novelty that was added to the glass, it would send me more into stress mode, anxiety mode. And I didn't like that. But in order to grow, you need to step outside of the domain of the tribe. 
your safe area. Because if you're not happy, if you're feeling a sense of lack, you're feeling lonely, if you're feeling unhealthy or you look unhealthy, then you have to break outside of the patterns you're currently running in order to find answers to why you're feeling like this. What is really going on internally? How are some people living this enlightened lifestyle, this healthy lifestyle, and I'm not? So you have to study these people, and that requires you to face your inadequacies. Because once you start to study these people, you'll start to realize, oh, wow, uh, I'm not like that, and uh, wow, I need to work on this. And it takes courage to confront those inadequacies. Mindset is a book all about the set mindset, the traits of somebody with a set mindset, and the growth mindset. And she lays out many people in the book who went from being stuck in their ways to developing and growing in character and becoming successful in whatever they put their mind to. Here's a passage from her book. Brainwaves tell the story. You can even see the difference in people's brainwaves. People with both mindsets came into our brainwave lab at Columbia. As they answered hard questions and got feedback, we were curious about when their brainwaves would show them to be interested and attentive. People with a fixed mindset were only interested when the feedback reflected on their ability. Their brainwaves showed them paying close attention when they were told whether their answers were right or wrong. But when they were presented with information that could help them learn, there was no sign of interest. Even when they'd gotten an answer wrong, they were not interested in learning what the right answer was. Only people with a growth mindset paid close attention to information that could stretch their knowledge. Only for them was learning a priority. What's your priority? If you had to choose, which would it be? Loads of success and validation or lots of challenge? It's not just on intellectual tasks that people have to make these choices. People also have to decide what kinds of relationships they want. Ones that bolster their egos or ones that challenge them to grow? Who is your ideal mate? We put this question to young adults and here's what they told us. People with the fixed mindset said the ideal mate would put them on a pedestal, make them feel perfect, worship them. In other words, the perfect mate would enshrine their fixed qualities. My husband says that he used to feel this way, that he wanted to be the god of one person, his partner's religion. Fortunately, he chucked this idea before he met me. People with the growth mindset hoped for a different kind of partner. They said 
their ideal mate was someone who would see their faults and help them to work on them, challenge them to become a better person, encourage them to learn new things. Certainly, they didn't want people who would pick on them or undermine their self-esteem, but they did want people who would foster their development. They didn't assume they were fully evolved, flawless beings who had nothing more to learn. Uh Uh-oh, what if two people with different mindsets get together? A growth mindset woman tells about her marriage to a fixed mindset man. I'd barely gotten all the rice out of my hair when I began to realize I made a big mistake. Every time I said something like, why don't we try to go out a little more? Or, I'd like it if you consulted me before making decisions, he was devastated. Then, instead of talking about the issues I raised, I'd have to spend literally an hour repairing the damage of making him feel good again. Plus, he would then run to the phone to call his mother, who always showered him with the constant adoration he seemed to need. We were both young and new at marriage. I just wanted to communicate. So the husband's idea of a successful relationship, total, uncritical acceptance, was not the wife's. And the wife's idea of a successful relationship confronting problems was not the husband's. One person's growth was the other person's nightmare. That's the passage from Mindset. I highly recommend this book because we all get stuck in a set mindset at one point or another. I certainly was for a long period of my life. But it's when I understood that it takes constant growth, or constant challenges, sorry, constant challenges to grow and live a more healthy and peaceful lifestyle. The relationships that I had in my past and still have improved because of my growth, if I were to stay the same, I would continue to rely on them for reassurance, for support. And I would have drained more of their energy because I would have been a burden to them. Now I'm self-reliant. I have all the confidence and inner resources within me to handle the challenges life throws my way. I am more independent because I continuously place myself in uncomfortable situations to not only desensitize myself, but to learn how can I solve these problems on my own. The third book I want to dive into is Russell Brand's Recovery. Freedom from Our Addictions. I love this book because, well, first of all, I love Russell Brand and I think he's a great spiritual teacher. He came from a background of addiction, fame, adoration, drugs, alcohol. And he decided 
that they weren't the answer, that they were affecting his life on a greater scale, a destructive scale. We all suffer from one or two addictions. I certainly did. When I went through recovery from anxiety, a lot of addictions came to the surface, whether it was something like caffeine to something like porn addiction or uh, toxic relationships or food, carbohydrates, sugar. We all have something that we can break, but we don't know it's a problem until we try to stop. When we try to stop and realize that we can't stop, then it's an addiction. Here is a passage from Recovery. Russell says, Here is a clinically accepted breakdown of the cycle of addiction. If this model is reflective of the aspect of your life that you'd like to change, it's likely that the 12-step model will too. Let's see. A five-point guide to the cycle of addiction. Number one, pain. Number two, using an addictive agent like alcohol, food, sex, work, dependent relationships to soothe and distract. Number three, temporary anesthesia or distraction. Number four, consequences. Number five, shame and guilt leading to pain or low self-esteem. And off we go again. I'll tell you how this applies to me and you can mentally keep track with its application to your problem. And don't let yourself off the hook if I seem crazier than you. That's my qualification for writing this book. Remember, I was in pain. As long as I can remember, I didn't feel good enough. Now, I'm a little older, I think, what does that mean, good enough, compared to what, when, where, how? But back then, in my gurgling and nervous childhood and rash and frenetic teens, I just felt inadequate, incomplete, not good enough, and it hurt. I looked out at the world as if from within an aquarium, and it felt lonely. I also had no technique for addressing that feeling, so I had to invent some. That is number two on the five-point guide. I used an addictive agent, and in my earliest incarnation of addictive behavior, I used the innocuous toxin sugar, chocolate, food. I put stuff in my mouth, and I felt better. What's wrong with that? Forgive me if I'm patronizing you here, I want you to understand a few crucial points. I was managing my feelings through external means, and the object is not in itself bad. There's no point in demonizing chocolate biscuits. They of themselves are not the problem. They won't, of their own violation, kick down your front door, shine a flashlight in your face as you sleep, drag you from your bed, and jam themselves down your throat. The participation of your consciousness is a prerequisite. For some people, a chocolate biscuit is a harmless treat. For some, a wee drop of rum or a saucy nip of smack is a tonic. The heroin will ferry you to crisis more quickly 
than a chocolate penguin biscuit, but the key point is the function of this external agent in your life. Number three is a temporary numbing, the moment of grateful exhalation and relief, post-biscuit, post-coital, post-gratifying text from the object of your obsession, post-whatever it is you're fixing on. Point four is consequences. What is the price paid? I used to feel awful as a kid after I'd snaffled my way through a week's worth of biscuits in one absent-minded sitting. I don't think there's a person alive who doesn't reproach themselves momentarily after an orgasm achieved in solitude. And after using drugs, when I was coming to the end of my sojourn into substance misuse was the only time I could countenance quitting. Number five is pain, and we're back to the start of the cycle. As Eckhart Tolle says, addiction starts with pain and ends with pain. Here we can see that dissected. That is from recovery. And that is where I'm going to leave you on today's podcast episode. I hope that these passages resonated with you in some way. And I recommend these books because they are truly powerful books that will guide you through this development process you are currently on. Thank you for being here with me today. Lastly, do not let anxiety define who you are. I will see you on the next podcast episode. Bye for now. Brad's Powerful Anxiety Recovery Program is now available at unpluganxiety.com. The Anxiety Project Program is downloadable and puts the power of anxiety recovery in your own hands. Visit unpluganxiety.com for more details. Recovery starts now.